welcome to a special additional episode of This Week in the History of Psychology for September 11th to 17th. This is your host, Christopher Green from York University in Toronto, Canada. In the main episode for September 11th to 17th, I interviewed Professor Malcolm McMillan of Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, about the case of Phineas Gage. Uh, the actual interview that I had with Professor McMillan lasted almost 45 minutes, um, but I had to edit it down, of course, to fit into the show to, to less than 20 minutes. So here I present the full interview with Professor Malcolm McMillan. So what sort of man was Phineas Gage? Where did he come from? And what do we know about his character prior to the accident? Well, we know a fair bit about him and where he came from, but we know very little about him as an individual in the sense of we don't know how, exactly how much education he had. He had a probably uh, a primary or elementary school education. Uh, he certainly didn't have anything much more than that. He was born into a farming family of uh, Puritan descent, actually, who'd originally come over in the 1630s to uh, the Massachusetts area. Hmm. Uh, he would be, have been familiar with farm work, and in New Hampshire, which is where he grew up, uh, farming was often carried out in very rocky soil, so almost all farmers knew about explosives and how to handle them. Uh, we don't know what work he did prior to the first time we hear about him, which is when he is the foreman of a railway or railroad construction gang working just outside of Cavendish in uh, Vermont. It's more or less a uh, central uh, part of Vermont. Mm -hmm. Now, we know something about the skills involved in that job, uh, and oddly enough, I know a fair bit about them because I once worked as a coal miner and know a little bit about the problems of trying to... Uh, figure out where to set explosives, uh, how deep to set them, how much uh, explosive to put in them to produce the maximum effect um, in, uh, uh, with minimal sort of uh, long-term damage. And, and it is a moderately skilled occupation. Now, he was working as a foreman, and that probably meant that he was a subcontractor. That is, he recruited the members of the work gang he has a lot of them their, their duties. He oversaw their work. He uh, arranged for them to be paid uh, and so on. In other words, he had a fairly superior supervisory function as well as the technical skills involved in deciding where to uh, set the explosive charges. Now, the point about his uh, supervisory role with the men is important because Foremen were not liked by the members of their gangs, and they were often assaulted, sometimes murdered. And in fact, one murder took place around about Phineas's time in the general area where he was actually working. So that when uh, it is said that he was a great favourite with his men, that means that he must have been, you know, fairly exceptional as a foreman. Uh, the other thing that we know about him prior to the accident was that he was regarded by the company that employed him as the best for best and most efficient foreman in their uh, employment. Well, so he sounds that's like... He, oh. The sum total of what we know about him. 
So it sounds like he had a fairly responsible position and, and was a person who showed a fair bit of initiative in, it, in his own right. Yeah, that's, that's right. He, oh, he was also of uh, uh, had very considerable muscular strength. Uh, he had a very pronounced strong will, and he, he was a man of what was said to be temperate habits. That is to say, he didn't drink, um, and uh, in general would have been you know, a, a fairly quiet, uh, inoffensive person. And do you think this would have been unusual on a railway gang in the mid-19th century in rural New England? Probably not in rural New England. It's, it's a bit hard to say. Uh, there was a distinction between the people who worked on the, uh, the railroad who came locally and those who were there as the labourers, many of them, and particularly in, uh, in Vermont and, and around Cavendish, were of Irish extraction. Um, there were many of them were Irish migrants who'd come out of it especially to work on the railways or on the canals that had preceded uh, the railway uh, industry. Um, and they were a, a, a group of people who, it is said, were often divided by regional, that is Irish regional loyalties uh, and were a, a brawling uh, drunken lot as opposed to the locals who were uh, of a temperate nature who had the supervisory jobs. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, it wouldn't have been unusual for the, the uh, foreman to have been sensible kinds of people, uh, stable people, uh, but uh, that they would, would have been unfair uh, would have been more the... Uh, Norm than Phineas's uh, obvious fairness in, in doing what he was doing. Right. Well, c- could you describe then for us the accident itself and the treatment that, that Phineas received? How is it possible that he survived so devastating an injury? Yeah. Uh, well, how he survived is still really a bit of a mystery, but the accident itself is, uh, goes something like this. Um, he, the construction work was being carried out about three-quarters of a mile, maybe a couple of kilometres uh, immediately south of Cavendish in Vermont. Um, he was uh, uh, setting a charge. Now, that meant that he was packing down the powder uh, at the end of a drill hole, probably three or four, four foot deep, um, into which there would have been placed an... Uh, what was called a safety fuse. There was no detonators hadn't been invented at that time, and the explosive powder was a some kind of gunpowder mixture, very probably. That would have been packed down uh, fairly lightly uh, with uh, some uh, iron rod, generally, or perhaps a wooden rod, but in this case it was an iron rod. Then uh, some sand would have been poured on top of the powder and the whole lot rammed down rather more solidly to confine the explosion at the end of the drill hole. The charge would then have been set off by lighting the fuse, and once it got to the powder, it would have caused the explosion. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but it was at the first stage when there was only the powder in the hole. Phineas was using his tamping iron, which I'll describe in a minute, to pack the charge down, and the iron struck the side of the rock, which is very hard, and um, struck a, uh, created a spark which set alight the powder, and that propelled 
the tamping iron uh, through his head. Now, the tamping iron is a small crowbar-like instrument, about three feet seven inches long, um, 13 and a quarter pounds in weight, and one and a quarter inches in diameter at the thicker end, because at one end it tapered over about a foot to a diameter of about a quarter of an inch. So it had a uh, spear-like quality to it, if you like. This is a quite substantial object. This is a quite substantial Mm -hmm. object. It's like an iron javelin. Yeah, yeah, a very substantial object. If you can ever get to the uh, 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 Countway Medical Library, where the item is on display, do have a look at it and just imagine it passing through your own head. (laughs) You know, it's at least four or five times larger, that is longer, than uh, an average skull. Wow. So it's a a, a massive thing. Well, it entered, uh, well, the way Phineas was holding it, he, he had it with the pointed end toward him when the explosion took place, entered under the cheekbone, passed behind the eye and out through the top of his head around about where the uh, coronal uh, suture meets the midline. We don't exactly know where it came out. And then it went through the air and landed some uh, 30 metres behind him. So it was, you know, an object propelled with a great deal of force and landed some distance behind him. Now, that's how the accident happened. The immediate effects were that he was knocked over. He may not have lost consciousness. That's not absolutely certain. But he he got up and, with the help of his gang, walked to an ox cart, which was nearby, got himself into the cart, sat against the headboard, and was driven the three-quarters of a mile up to the inn in Cavendish, where he, where he uh, resided, got out sat down on the veranda of the uh, inn and uh, talked to all of the bystanders and uh, his uh, gang and so on about what had happened. And when the uh, doctor from the next village turned up, uh, he'd been called in to to, uh, render assistance, Uh, Phineas looked up at him and said, Doctor, here is business enough for you. (laughs) Quite astonishing that he'd made it that far, even that far. Yeah, exactly, you see, and he, he the thing is that he barely lost consciousness, he had all his wits about him, and even a certain, uh, you know, degree of humour about what had happened. Now, he told this doctor what had happened, and the doctor didn't believe him, uh, until he pointed to the slit in his cheek where the thing had gone through in, and, of course, it was obvious, even uh, to Dr. Williams, that's the name of the doctor, uh, from sitting in his carriage, that there was some sort of uh, pyramid-like structure on the top of uh, Phineas's head. That is, the bones had been pushed out uh, in this kind of way. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Williams didn't really do very much in the way of treatment, although his own family believes that he was uh, robbed to some extent of the um, uh, credit for Phineas's recovery. The local doctor, who was Dr. John Martin Harlow, a very recent graduate from uh, medical school, was in the village, uh, the doctor in the village, possibly associated with the railroad. He turned up about an hour after the accident and they began to treat 
uh, Phineas, they had two tasks, the primary tasks to do. One was to try to stop the bleeding, and the other was to put which large bits of bone were uh, still there uh, back into place. Um, they were able to staunch the bleeding within about 24 hours, uh, and they got one of the bones so well back into place that it's almost impossible when you examine the skull to see that it was ever misplaced. The front part, however, uh, was rather less successfully uh, replaced and uh, it remained sort of semi-protruded under the scalp that regrew um, uh, for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Well, now, the standard accounts of Gage's accident that one reads, uh, say, in textbooks, say that his personality and behavior changed dramatically afterwards, that he was emotionally labile and that he became a ne'er-do-well and a drunk, and, and even sometimes that he performed in a Barnum freak show. But your research has shown that much of this is, well, at best, half true. Could you help us separate the wheat from the chaff here? What actually became of Gage in the years after the accident? Well, the, the problem is that we, we don't really know. I spent a lot of time in my research going around New England, looking at uh, newspapers, looking at the journals of local doctors, uh, school teachers, people who might have been expected to have been interested in uh, uh, this accident. And although we think of it as being a, a massively important thing nowadays, particularly those of us in the in psychology or the neurosciences, it barely rated uh, a mention in the local press of the time. And it's very hard to find any confirmation, or I, I didn't find much in the way of confirmation of the story. What we have are the, as primary sources are the two medical reports that John Martin Harlow wrote, one in 1848, published in the precursor to the New England Journal of Medicine, and the other, published in 1868, well after Phineas's death, published in the Proceedings of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Uh, it was part of the uh, annual meeting of the society. And uh, I'll mention here that it uh, wasn't a publication that had wide circulation. So a lot of people never got to know what had really happened. Now, what, what little we know about Harlow before and after the accident uh, comes substantially from those two accounts. There's a little bit to be added from uh, Henry Jacob Bigelow, the professor of surgery at Harvard, who saw Phineas toward the end of 1849, that is about 12 months after the accident. Um, the little bit that uh, is recorded as family uh, information told to Dr. John Barnard Sweat Jackson, a very eminent Boston uh, uh, medical man who travelled up to the family farm to see Phineas. Unfortunately, Phineas wasn't there. He adds in a little bit uh, about his physical state um, and his mental state up to about six months after the accident. Apart from that, we know almost nothing. Now, what Harlow says is that after he'd recovered, he exhibited himself with his bar in the larger cities of New England. I wasn't able to find anything to confirm that. No uh, records by anybody of Phineas ever having been anywhere. No ads or reports in newspapers about this sort of thing? 
Yeah, that's right. You don't find it in newspapers. You don't find it in people's correspondence. Uh, you don't find it in their journals uh, and so on. Harlow says that he one of the places that he visited to exhibit himself was Barnum's Museum. Now, Barnum had a stationary museum in New York, and it wasn't entirely freak show, but it was a little bit like that. And that's where Phineas is supposed to have been. Now, there's no record in Barnum, no Barnum posters, no New York newspaper, no record in the New York Historical Society of Phineas having set the world on fire, so to speak, when he <laughs> went to New York. But that's where he was. Most people don't know these days about Barnum's museum, so they think Barnum, freak, Barnum, circus, therefore Phineas must have wandered around as a kind of freak show attraction in fairgrounds and the like uh, through, throughout New England. Right, and what about the, the, the reports of drunkenness and becoming a ne'er-do-well? Did he ever work again? Yeah, there's no contemporary report at all about him being a brawler or about him being a drunk and so on. The first uh, mention of uh, drunkenness is late in the 1800s, at least uh, 20 years after, after Harlow's report. I'm speaking now in terms of 1890s. Right. Remember, the accident took place in 1848. And Harlow's second report was 1868. Well, it's well after that that there's any mention of, of drunkenness by anybody, and it's not documented uh, in, in, in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. So we don't have the impression that he drifted around, <clears throat> if you like, semi-intoxicated, uh, making a nuisance of himself. What we do know, however, from Harlow, is that probably about the beginning of 1851, he went to work for an innkeeper in Dartmouth, New Hampshire, a man called Jonathan Currier. Currier ran a livery stable as well as an inn and had coaches for hire and did a lot of the coach uh, work that ran out from, uh, from Dartmouth into the rest of New Hampshire. And it's entirely possible Phineas, who was skilled in, uh, as a farm boy in looking after animals, and uh, riding horses and that sort of thing, probably um, be, uh, became skilled as a coach driver working for Courier. I mean, we, we don't know that, but we do know that about 18 months after he went to work for Courier, he was engaged by a man who was going to South America to found a coach line in Valparaiso, uh, would run between Valparaiso and Santiago as part of the expansion of that port following the uh, gold rush to uh, California because uh, that, that was the first port really for um, restocking, recuperating after the voyage around the Horn. Mm -hmm. uh, and Phineas stayed there for some time, uh, presu presumably, well, we do know that he was working as a coach driver, probably a stage coach driver. Uh, that's one of the bits Jackson adds to the story. Um, and uh, that he became ill for some reason, and Harlow was never able to establish <clears throat> what it was that he suffered from. And in about 1859, he went to uh, San Francisco. His mother and brother-in-law and sister, having moved there as part of the immigration to California with the gold rushes, 
He went there and he took some months to recover. He got well enough, physically well enough, to commence work. He worked for farmers, a farmer, in the area immediately south of San Francisco, Santa Clara County. And uh, he, he started to have epileptic seizures. And it's at that point that his behavior seems to have become disturbed and unsettled. He uh, found fault with the various employers that he had and he'd give up work for this one and go and work for that one and so on. The following year, in 1860, he uh, must have had some sort of premonition and he went home to San Francisco to his mother's place and he commenced a severe set of seizures that gradually became a continuous, a so-called status epilepticus, and he didn't recover from that and, and in fact, died. Um, so the story of him wandering around, if anything, comes from this time after the uh, seizures began uh, toward the end of his life. What we find is, when we look at it carefully, is that he worked for a year and a half for Courier in Dartmouth in New Hampshire, and he worked for a number of years then in uh, uh, Chile, in uh, uh, Valparaiso, presumably, um, at the one trade. We don't know anything about uh, you know who employed him or anything of that sort, um, but it isn't a uh, um, it isn't a life dominated by an unwillingness to work, which is often represented as being unwilling to work or an inability to work because of his uh, tendency not to want to settle down. And it's also the case that he clearly looked after himself. He wasn't dependent upon anybody. Right. You know, he made money, he may not have spent it wisely, but he did manage to look after himself. And, you know, conclusions such as those that he dry, died in a drunken brawl or died of drunkenness and dissipation um, in a poorhouse or something like that. That's all uh, fabrication because there's nothing anywhere that uh, even suggests that that was the sort of fate that he had. So the, the uh, wheat is that after a period of exhibiting himself and moving around New England, he settled to a job for a year and a half. He then went to Chile where he worked consistently over a period until his health began to fail. He went back to San Francisco. He worked successfully up to the time when he started to have seizures. He then became unsettled and uh, eventually he died of the, uh, of the epileptic seizures themselves. Well, that's a quite a very different... different story. That's a quite yes. That's a quite different picture than we're than we're often uh, presented with in um, in in textbook and popular oh, look, accounts. I, I think there's, there's one thing that that it is necessary to say, and that is that Harlow does say that he couldn't get his job back on the railroad because his personality had changed, and he gives a very vivid description uh, of that, which is often reproduced in in textbooks, and it's undoubtedly accurate. But when you think about it, it must have been true in the first year or two after the accident and could not have been true for the rest of Phineas's life. So he had a long period of recuperation where he, uh, whatever personality problems he had early on seemed to uh, get better. Yes. Some, well, you can't really say recovered from the accident, but at least settled down. Now, I've become very interested in this question of recovery from head injury 
and you don't find these cases reported in the literature, um, but there are some 12 or so cases I've found of people who have, despite massive injury of the kind that Phineas suffered and a very long period of being um, unsettled, have made a useful social recovery to the point of being uh, able to work again, being financially independent, being socially adapted and so on. Now, generally speaking, what you find as the common element in these cases is that they've found themselves in some situation that's provided structure for them, uh, structure where they don't have to make decisions or they don't have to make important decisions, and that gives them stability and they gradually become able to take more and more responsibility uh, for themselves. Now, if you think about Phineas and coach driving, uh, most people think of coach driving a bit like uh, it's represented in the Hollywood uh, movies, that is, stagecoach and galloping away from the Indians. But in fact, it's a highly skilled occupation, and the sort of coach that Phineas almost certainly drove, the Concord coaches manufactured in Concord, New Hampshire, were driven with a particular kind of grip so that in one hand you had all the reins for the horses, one rein for each horse looped over the finger and you could control each rein by uh, subtle movements of the finger. On the other hand, you had the whip, not for whipping the horses, but for cracking the whip near the ears as a signal as to what they had to do. Now that's, you know, a lot of coordination. When you take into account that you have to slow horses on the inside of a turn that they're making, so that the ones on the inside go slower than the ones on the outside, you know, you start to see that there's a lot of advanced cognitive motor skills involved in coach driving. But it is also something that's set by your employer. Your coach leaves at a certain time. That means you've got to get up at a certain time. You've got to groom the horses. You have to um, then harness them. You've got to be at the place to pick up the passengers at an appointed time. You've got to uh, decide on uh, fares, in some cases, which route you're going to take um, and uh, make all sorts of adjustments for the particular uh, day and time uh, of travel. Now, all of that, you see, is much more advanced kind of uh, skills or uh, are many. All of that, sorry, involves uh, greater skills than Phineas would ordinarily be given credit for. But as soon as you get into the nitty-gritty of what it was that he did, you're faced with uh, having to think, well, maybe he made a recovery simply because he was involved in coach driving and it forced him into a routine uh, where he could gradually uh, acquire these skills that made him uh, more or less uh, adaptable to the circumstances. Kind of an on-the-job occupational therapy of sorts. Yeah, in a sort of a way. Now, in your book, you argue that, the, that Gage's case has been revived repeatedly over the century and a half since his death, primarily to serve the ends of, of people whose main interest seems to have been advancing their own particular ideas about neuroscience rather than finding out the truth about Gage's injuries. Could you tell us about some of those, please? Yes, well, you have to go back to the period roughly of the accident itself where knowledge that there might be 
functions, psychological functions, localised in the brain was starting to emerge. Uh, in the 1840s, it wasn't certain, for example, that speech was mainly a left-sided function. It was still being argued uh, whether or not injury on one side of the brain might cause uh, motor paralysis or motor weakness on the other side of the brain. The knowledge of which functions were localised in the brain was uh, pretty limited. In 1848, when the first account of Phineas's accident took place, um, or when the first report was made, I should say, um, Harlow didn't include any of the changes. So as far as you know, you could tell, Phineas was one of those cases with massive damage to the brain where there'd been little in the way of consequences. Now that suited the anti-localisationist tradition, which was mainly um, based around the work of the French physiologist Florent, and uh, which um, was the dominant medical view. The opposite point of view was the phrenological point of view, which uh, it's not the right name for it, which came from the work of uh, Franz Joseph Gaul and uh, Caspar Spurzheim. They were the first person, to, first people to propose definite psychological functions being localised in the brain. They were ridiculed for the most part by the medical profession, although in some countries, for instance in Scotland, and particularly in New England, um, and in a number of New England medical schools, one of which Harlow attended, this phrenological doctrine was given a good deal of attention, if not actual endorsement. So uh, when Harlow reports that there's no change, or fails to report that there were any changes, uh, it seems to fit very nicely with the view that the brain didn't have any functions. Then, in 1850, Harlow, uh, sorry, Henry Jacob Bigelow reports on what he's seen with Phineas. Now, Bigelow was an anti-localisationist, anti-phrenologist, and the fact that he didn't report any changes isn't surprising. Even though he had Phineas apparently living somewhere nearby for four or to six weeks uh, in Boston while he examined him repeatedly and, and demonstrated him to groups of medical students and to his colleagues. So at first, you see, up until about 1850, people don't think that there's any change. The exception was the American Phrenological Journal itself, which, drawing probably on something that Harlow had told them, uh, contradicted Bigelow and used many of the words that are in Harlow's famous description about Phineas having been coming profane, irreverent, etc., etc. That was 1851. It was in the Phrenological Journal, and of course nobody paid much attention to it. <laughs> so the matter really didn't uh, get much use apart from Bigelow's fairly obvious denial that there had been any change, and his a denial was connected, as I say, to his anti-localisationist, anti-phrenological position. The matter stayed there pretty much until the 1860s and 1870s, when the doctrine of localisation received a boost through the work of Broca, who showed that uh, 
there was a language function in the left frontal lobes, and uh, the work of uh, Fritz and Hitzig in Germany and David Ferrier in particular in England. Broca, uh, as I think almost everybody uh, will know, found patients in whom there was a loss of language function, uh, sometimes just simply a loss of speech, but mostly it was loss of a proper language function and there had been injury or damage to the uh, left side of the frontal lobes. Ferrier, following Hitzig, did experimental work which showed that motor functions were also localised uh, on both sides of the brain so that uh, the motor movement functions on the right side of the body were controlled from the left side of the brain and vice versa. And <coughs> he used a method of uh, electrical stimulation of the exposed uh, monkey brain to establish that. So that by around about the middle 1870s, there's some evidence, although it was disputed, of course, by everybody, the anti-localizations didn't want it, was disputed uh, that there were um, motor and uh, language functions uh, localized in the brain. <clears throat> a French physiologist called Eugène Dupuis, Dupuis sorry, um, attacked the localizationist tradition using Phineas as his example. He said, look, if the tamping iron went through the areas that um, uh, Harlow and Bigelow say it went through, he should, he, Phineas, should have had a motor weakness on the right side and he should have lost his language function. Now, Ferrier, hearing this story, uh, because Ferrier was one of the people whose work was being attacked, wrote to his colleagues or friends, acquaintances, in the United States, in the Boston area, and got the full story and made an absolutely devastating reply to Dupuy's uh, attack, saying, uh, showing, as far as he was concerned, that the tamping iron had not injured the motor or the language areas. It had been uh, further forward than that. Um, and the matter more or less rested with that. Um, it's in Ferrier's correspondence you find this wonderful phrase that he wants to go back to the original and, and see what the waters, however muddy they might be, uh, reveal because uh, so much that's published is um, uh, clouded by uh, the theoretical preconceptions of the, uh, the people making the reports. Well, that's good advice, given how this uh, how this case yeah, very uh, good advice in the how this case day. spelled you out. Always go back to the original. Anyway, uh, the debate really didn't didn't progress much beyond that. People accepted that there had been damage. People accepted there was localization of function. Uh, the only thing that was at issue was how uh, vast the uh, the damage was to Phineas. And as time went on. You know, more and more things got added to that uh, uh, couple of hundred word picture of Harlow in his 1868 report. The drunkenness got added, the brawling got added, the aggressiveness got added, uh, and so on. Well, um, in, the, in, in, in the 20th century, the lobotomists are going to claim him, and now one of the Damasios has claimed him as well, yes? Yeah, that's true. Now, the lobotomist claim was, was not really... 
uh, about localization. It was really just that if he could survive, that is, if he could live with that amount of injury to the brain, then uh, it was uh, possible to uh, um, carry out operations like lobotomy. But uh, Moniz, who uh, invented the operation, made no reference to gauge, and there's nothing that even suggests uh, a reference to gauge in his reasoning. Walter Freeman, who introduced the uh, operation to the United States and to you know the the, the world outside of uh, Spain and Portugal, uh, was um, did refer to gauge in his book, but it was more as a, uh, a um, an illustration of what damage could take place, rather than that uh, you might operate on people and bring about this kind of disinhibited uh, behaviour deliberately. With the uh, Damasios, you've got a slightly different picture because uh, uh, Antonio Damasio has collected a number of patients who uh, have uh, a set of behaviours in common uh, and uh, a similar kind of pattern of uh, brain damage. It's uh, mainly left, but to some extent bifrontal, um, that is, involves the right hemisphere, and it's much forward and it involves the underside of the brain, the ventral parts of the brain as well. Now he represents Gage as having that pattern of damage and he represents Gage's behaviour, particularly in being honest and not to be trusted, um, which is more like his own patients than Gage ever was. I mean there's very little uh, about Gage not being trusted. Unreliable perhaps, yes, but that's not quite the same thing. Um, and Gage did, toward the end of his life, entertain his young nephews and nieces with stories of his fabulous adventures in South America. Well, this is turned virtually by Damasio into a story that, that Gage was a liar and uh, made things up, you see, and, and uh, was dishonest in, in that sense. Right. Well, um, <clears throat> the reconstruction by Damasio, incidentally, is, is a very interesting one. It's computer-generated model of the skull, and uh, it has the uh, points of emergence of the tamping iron much further forward uh, and to the right than uh, the massive hole that was still left in the top of his head through which everybody else has always imagined the tamping iron um, uh, uh, emerged. That is, he, he uh, Damasio's group, in their reconstruction of the passage of the tamping iron, has it coming out through one of the flaps that was complete and replaced, but uh, not very adequately replaced. Uh, since that time, incidentally, there's been another really wonderful attempt at reconstructing the path of the damage by Peter Ratiu in Boston and his colleagues, and this is published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And if you're if you can follow the right leads, you'll see a wonderful video. What they did was to build up a 3D model of Gage's skull, not an average computer simulation, but the skull itself. And they noticed two things which nobody else has really paid that much attention to. The first is this complete line of fracture from behind the opening at the top of the skull running right down through the eye, the cheekbone, to the entry point. And they noticed, so this is all connected, you see, a single line of fracture. 
The second thing they noticed was the entry hole in the in the cheekbone, uh, sorry, in the base of the skull above the cheekbone, is smaller in diameter than the maximum diameter of the tamping iron. Hmm. So what could this mean? How could the hole be smaller than the thing that passed through it? Well, what they propose is that the skull opened on a kind of hinge mechanism. That's why you've got this line of fracture all down the front. The skull opened out, the bar passed through, and, you know, we know it went all the way through, and then the soft tissues pull the skull uh, together again, leaving, of course, the hole where it had gone in smaller than it had been as the bar itself passed through. Now, their reconstruction is very compelling, and it uh, reinstates the left frontal lobe as the major uh, part of the immediate damage. Of course, there was other damage because he did hemorrhage. There were other bits of bone that were driven in. There was infection, uh, etc. But the uh, Ratu uh, video is just fantastic, as is the account of the uh, account of the case. That's fascinating. Um... And, and they don't they don't have uh, incidentally any theoretical preconceptions of what behaviours might be associated with. Uh, what kinds of uh, uh, localization of function? So they're whole... it, it's not a theoretical, but it's it's they didn't have a theoretical expectation, as far as I can tell. Their primary intention was to reconstruct Gage's accident rather than to demonstrate something else. Yeah. All right. So, what broader lessons do you think are to be learned from the Gage case about these sort of neatly packaged stories that we see repeated over and over again in textbooks and popular accounts in the history of psychology and the history of science, I guess, more broadly? Do, do you think that the, the Gage case is of a piece with, say, the story of the apple dropping on Newton's head and, and the many fables that surround the debate between Thomas Henry Huxley and Bishop Wilberforce in the wake of the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species? What, what are these tales seem to tell us? Why do they seem to be so um, widespread in history, do you think? Well, I, I honestly don't know because, you know, you really need to start to look into the origins, if you like, origins and functions of scientific myths. Um, they do have a number of things in common, those stories. Um, all of those myths are simple and they have a simple explanation. And it would have been nice had Newton been sitting under the tree and an apple dropped on his head and he suddenly thought, well, maybe there is a force of gravity that holds everything together. Um, it, um, uh, it, it, it's a bit like uh, uh, the stories of uh, Freud's patients allegedly telling him that they had been seduced into sexual experiences when they were children. Now, uh, that's easy to understand. It's fooled people like Jeffrey Mason it's fooled a whole lot of feminist uh, uh, psychoanalyst uh, uh, people as well. But the fact of the matter is that no patient said anything like that to Freud. They had fragmentary recollections which he built up into these stories of childhood seduction and then more or less forced his patients to agree with them. Now that's an oversimplified uh, version of it, but you can find a full analysis of it in the work of people like Alan Esterson and even in my own book, uh, Freud Evaluator. But it's a hell of a lot easier to believe 
that Freud's patience impacted on him in the same way as the apple impacted on Newton in a simplistic kind of way than to think about the, uh, the complexity of the relationship between the phenomena that's uh, being uh, described. Um, the, I think the, the other thing is, you know, how do these things get propagated? Well, I think, uh, for, for the most part, the textbook writers are lazy, but also under enormous pressure to say the same kinds of things as are already in the textbooks, so that they have pressure from publishers as well as their own inertia, working to repeat stories rather than to go back to original sources. And hardly anybody wants to go back to original sources. And in the Gage case, of course, the original sources are hard to come by. That's why in my book I've had them reproduced in facsimile form, so that if anybody disagrees with what I've said, they can go back to the sources and, uh, you know, just by flicking to the end of the book and see, you know, how inaccurate, how my own theoretical preconceptions are leading the waters to uh, be, be clouded. Um, but, so people don't look at the sources, they prefer the simple over the complex, but it's very hard to divest yourself of your own uh, preconceptions. For example, when I was writing my book on Freud, I found on one occasion, almost by accident, that I'd cited an analyst as supporting my own critical position. And I thought, yes, he did, but I'd better just check that. And I went back to what he had said, and he hadn't actually got quite as far as supporting me 100%. He'd got, if you like, 85% of the way, and in my recollection, I'd filled in the other 15%. So I then made it a policy, before the book finally went to press, of going back over every reference and making sure that it had been cited correctly, paraphrased correctly, quoted correctly, uh, and so on. I didn't want anybody saying, you know, that I was attributing uh, points of view to other people that uh, that they didn't hold, but it was uh, really, you know, in the interest of accuracy and in the interest of avoiding uh, my own theoretical critical position from uh, overshadowing um, or uh, falsifying uh, my account of what people uh, were doing. So you think that we, um, uh, to some degree, uh, find, see what we're looking for, and, and what we're looking for comes partly from our own ideas and partly from what we've read about these cases uh, in the past in previous accounts? Yeah, well, you know, uh, we as psychologists know that there's nothing, if you like, like pure perception. You see things in the context of, you know, your past experience as well as the context of the stimuli on the particular occasion. And if you've absorbed a story about Gage of the simple kind, you know, he had this thing and this is what happened to him, um, it's, you've, you've already got some sort of schema there, like, uh, like Bartlett's uh, um, schema in remembering things, so that uh, you read something new and uh, this, um, even if it clashes with what you already know, we know from cognitive dissonance theory that it soon gets absorbed so that it doesn't disturb too much 
your already existing uh, point of view. And I, I think, you know, we, we fall, uh, fall foul, so to speak, of our tendency to be guided by our preconceptions rather than uh, what, is, what is actually there. Uh, and that's as far as we are concerned as readers and as uh, um, people acquiring knowledge. But it, this, this tendency um, doesn't um, give any sort of, shouldn't give any sort of comfort to uh, textbook writers, research workers and so on, especially when they know that, uh, you know, the story is really X, Y and Z and they persist in representing it as A, B and C. Right. Well, it's a fascinating story. Thank you very much. Okay, good. Well, that was the full interview with Malcolm McMillan of Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, about Phineas Gage. And this concludes this special, additional September 11th to 17th episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. This is your host, Christopher Green, from York University in Toronto, Canada. Thank you.